Coast Church Charlotte. His power, His strength, His authority can work on our behalf. Would you pray with me right now? Lord Jesus, we are coming to you in faith. We are presenting our needs before you. We have an answers to our needs, but we know you are the source of every good, yes. every perfect thing in our life. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are praying for the specific prayer requests that have been mentioned. Uh, we're praying uh, for uh, Holly Camp and her need in her body. We're praying for Linda Alexander, what she's going through with the health and loss of her husband. Lord, we're praying for uh, Dan Smith. You know exactly what's happening with him. I pray you would let relief come to him in that hospital room right now. Thank you, Whatever's going on in his body, let it be corrected today by the power of your name. We speak the name of Jesus over that sickness that circumstance in jesus name we pray for circumstances that are unspoken we pray for sister mary's request for her family we pray for our unspoken request for leah uh, we pray for prayer requests that reflect the uh the minutia the, the distractions the responsibilities the obligations of our life that wear us down we pray for uh principal um of uh, lucas's school as mentioned by uh, Brother Don, and also we are praying for uh, Sister Diane's situation with her needing a vehicle. Lord, we pray for you to give us wisdom in these circumstances of life. We ask for you to intervene according to your great power. There's people in our church who are going through mourning and loss. Um, Kim Lazarek recently lost her father. We're praying for that whole family today in Jesus' name. We have others who have recently buried uh, parents uh, just in the last few weeks. We pray for your comfort and your care to them in Jesus' name. We pray for people who are recovering. Uh, Brother Carlos' circumstance with his help. I pray that every day he feels the strength of your healing power upon him. In Jesus' name we pray. And every request uh, that we did not name, the Bible says you know even before we ask. Yes, and so we bring our needs to you and we promise you this, Lord Jesus. We will use the miraculous to make your name known. We will not simply collect the power, the blessing, the favor, the answers in our life as though we deserved them and take them for granted. But Lord, when you do work for us, when you heal us, when you intervene on our behalf, Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we will take special care to make your name known for what you have done, to glorify you above everything else. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody who has their mic on, say in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus name. All right, that's good. Um, so I am going to uh, make some uh, changes in the room right now and turn off the microphones. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm having uh, some... Uh, drainage in my throat, and that's causing me a little bit of challenge. Uh, let's get started. My subject here for the next little while is uh, sort of a fun subject. I realize that there are eight gospel sermons preached in the New Testament. Eight gospel sermons. What do I mean by that? Preachers, uh, notably Peter, Stephen, and Paul, all preach messages. And if you add up the messages they preach, it is eight, yes, eight messages that we have that are very much an example of what it's like to simply preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I decided I wanted to spend uh, a few Wednesday nights and I wanted to look at these eight messages and these three preachers and since the first gospel message we have is preached by Peter, I thought we would start, and I entitled our study tonight, Preaching Like Peter. I would love to preach like Peter. I'm sure you would like to preach like Peter, too. Uh, we can actually see how he did it. We can see how he structured the testimony of what God was doing. We could see how he used conviction as a way of challenging the hearer, and we can take these lessons, these themes, these ideas, and we can apply them to our own heart, to our own life. We can do more. 
we can apply them to how we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first one is going to be Acts chapter number two. If you have your Bible, why don't you get it open and why don't you just set it in your lap? We don't normally do a very extended Bible study or a Bible reading, I should say, on Wednesday night. But because we're reading Peter's sermon, we're going to read about uh, uh, a good bit of this. So uh, Peter standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass. Now he's quoting from verse 17 down to verse number 21. He is quoting the prophet Joel. Notice in a fairly short message how much he references what Joel had said. And starting at verse number 25, he's going to reference what uh, King David said. So he's going to use, let's see, about uh, seven verses from Joel, and he's going to use four verses from David. And all of this is in about uh, 20 something verses of preaching. And so he is quoting from Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is quoting the prophet Joel. And so from verses 17 to 21, that's all Joel. It's his reference text, you might say. Like he gets in front of the church and he says, turn to Joel chapter so-and-so. Now back to Peter preaching on uh, back in verse 22, men of Israel, he, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Let me pause right here at the end of verse number 22. And I want to just remind you of a few things that I have assumed you know. But if any of you are not familiar with this passage, let's all catch up to this moment. This is the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after the Passover. And it is 40 days after the resurrection of, excuse me, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, let me, I, I think I may have said that wrong. Uh, 50 days from the Passover and 10 days since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is uh, important numbers because what did Jesus say for them to do upon his ascension? He said, go tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. So they're in Jerusalem for 10 days. And what are they, do what are they doing? Well, they're tarrying. They are calling upon the name of the Lord. They are waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They are obeying. They are praying. Now, I have never been to a 10-day conference in my life. I, I'm unaware of any 10-day conferences. I have heard of some 10-day revivals. I've been a part of some 10-day revivals. Uh, but as far as a gathering of everyone where you don't have a kind of uh, order, shall we say, an itinerary. Uh, 10 days is a fairly lengthy extended prayer meeting. I oftentimes wonder how many people show up if we called a 10 day prayer meeting. Actually, what if we called a prayer meeting and said, we don't know when we're going to stop, but we've been thinking about our wives and we need to pray. It could take 10 days. It could take 50 days. Um, or, you know, it might need a long fast. Uh, so this has been a long fast 
not a fast, a long prayer. I was suddenly filled with fear when my wife pointed her finger at me. Um, so it was a long prayer meeting. And now Peter is quite surprised at what has happened. They did not know what to expect. They had images. They had prophetic image. This passage that he has quoted here is an example of prophetic image. Why does that matter? Because we have been given example of prophetic image, and we still don't know exactly what to expect. Do you see? Um, prophecy language often uses the poetic voice. It often uses the dramatic frame. And it is a way of creating in your spirit an expectation of an event that you will understand the feeling of, but you will not understand the details of if you understood the detail if god had given you an itinerary you wouldn't need as much faith in fact you could gain the system so to speak this is why no man knows the day nor the hour because our tearing our walk by faith reveals our heart do you see it reveals what we're pursuing we're not gaming the system because we know the Lord's coming in three weeks. So we go out and, you know, do all a bunch of ridiculous stuff. And then the last minute we fall back on mercy. That's not how it works. We, through faith, reveal our heart. We reveal our place. We reveal our spiritual way. So, uh, so to speak, um, if we aren't hungering after the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will not be found by us. It's not an algorithm to be manipulated. It's not a game to be the, the rules to use in some uh, strategic way. We reveal our hearts by the pursuing of the kingdom of God. And so did they have prophetic image? Yes, that's what he's just quoted. That's what Peter on the day of Pentecost has just quoted that prophetic image. But rather than promoting it or quoting it as something to come, he quotes it as a sign that has already been given. And he reminds them that this that they are seeing, this is that, that outpouring of God's spirit upon all flesh, the separation of God's Holy Spirit from humanity's flawed heart has been removed through the work of the cross. And we are able to enter in to his presence and you have become the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. When God's Spirit fills you, you have become the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. God's promised inhabitation is made possible through Calvary and is promised as that which is given to us through Calvary. All these, the author of the book of Hebrews will say, died in faith. They didn't receive the promise. They died before the work of redemption at Calvary. But you can have God hosted in your heart more. There is a sign that God will give you where it's not simply a choice of faith, but it is a personal testimony. This is the act of tongues in our life. So uh, I want you to see this. You all know that tongues is a sign. Tongues is not God's Holy Spirit. Tongues is a sign of God's Holy Spirit. That sign is given to you that you might have more than a choice of faith. You might have a testimony yourself. This is the same kind of miracle sign that the Lord used in his miraculous work in the house of Israel among the communities and villages of uh, the land of Palestine. Watch what Peter says next. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. What's happening right now, Peter is saying, is a sign in the same manner that every blinded eye that God opened was a sign. Every uh, deaf ear that was made whole was a sign. God gave witness of himself. He attested of himself. And this is why when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life and we do speak with tongues, it is as though 
for the personal individual. God gives testimony of himself. And this is why you see such a powerful transformation in the heart and in the life of the disciples. They didn't start believing now. They had long since been believing. They didn't start following Jesus now. They had long since followed Jesus. They didn't start studying the Bible now. They had long since studied the Bible. They didn't start praying now, do you see? What was the change? The change was the condition of their heart, mind, and spirit toward God. They were revolutionized in individual confidence. You can pray and still be in fear. You can try to follow Jesus and still be in fear. But when God himself gives a testimony of himself to you, when God attests to you the sign of his coming, the sign of his power, the sign of his Holy Spirit, it should have a transformative effect upon your faith. And so uh, let's continue. You yourselves also know, he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Uh, he's making now a transition from the signs of God to your condition relative to God, your need of God. In all the gospel story, it's not enough for it to be a happy story that happens somewhere, somehow to somebody. It needs to come down to you and where you are. And that's the, that's the gear shift that uh, Peter makes in his presentation of the gospel. He doesn't just simply announce a good thing. He leads them to their next spiritual step. Remember, we talk about that a lot. The only step that matters in the believer's life and the person coming to Christ, the only step that matters is the next one. Uh, there's other steps for other days. But in the here and now, what is your next step? They have to understand their condition of sin or they're never going to be ready for repentance. Um, we oftentimes struggle in the Bible Belt to get people convinced that they actually need to repent. I don't mean that in an overt way. I mean that because people, if you flat out ask them, they will say it. But they, so many people are not even living close to um, a life directed toward the things of God. But they grew up in church, around church, because it's the Bible Belt, and they know how to talk the talk. And as soon as you talk the talk, they talk the talk right back at you. I had that happen to me today. Um, or somebody just, they realized that I was a pastor and they, it was like they shifted gears and they went straight religious talk before it was just one way. And then the moment they shifted gears, threw it into overdrive and they started telling everybody to have a blessed day. And you understand what I'm saying. Um, now I don't know the condition of that individual's heart. I certainly don't think bad toward them at all. I'm just saying as soon as she felt, you know, that, now, now we're talking to the pastor. It was like, put it in overdrive, put it in overdrive. Um, in the South, a lot of people, um, because they know the church culture and they know church, churchified speak one to another, um, sometimes they'll come to church and act like they don't need to be on their face in repentance because they're comfortable. Um, Peter's not going to let this religious crowd, how do I know it was a religious crowd? Why were they in Jerusalem? They were there to celebrate a religious holiday. These were the people who saved their money and made pilgrimage. That's who he's preaching to. He, we're pre he's preaching to the religious of the religious. These are the conference goers. And what does he demand they do? Repent. Um, this is the same thing that John the Baptist would do when he started baptizing people. Um, the Jewish believer did not think they needed baptized. Baptism was what a, a Gentile would do when they became, they, they made a, became a convert to Judaism, uh, Gentile would be baptized. But here comes John the Baptist preaching to all these religious folks saying, you need to face the fact that you aren't anywhere close to God. You need to humble yourself and you need to come back to God as though you aren't in any condition of special treatment. You need to go back to grassroots, brass tacks. You need to be baptized just like a Gentile would and say, I've got to start over. Do you see how this common theme of 
we have to turn our hearts toward God. We turn away from something. We don't just turn toward something. So Peter preaches conviction to the religious crowd. Do you see? Uh, And he quotes now at verse 25, David. He quotes David. For David says concerning him, I I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. He's quoted Joel. Now he quotes David. Yes, you killed Jesus, he says to the crowd. It was your hatred that nailed him to a cross. But this is what David was talking about when he said in worship, a word that would be larger than worship, but live in the realm of prophecy. When he said that God would not let his Holy One see corruption. God would not let this Holy One stay in Hades. You killed him, but his plan was always bigger than your hatred. His plan was always greater than your scheme. He knew what was in your heart and he planned for it. That's a big deal. Um, Why do I say that? Because so many people, when they come to God, they start telling you why they aren't in church. And if they get this fixed and they get that fixed, then they'll come to church. It's as though they live with this idea that when I get myself sorted out, then I'll serve God. This is all wrong. You're not going to get yourself sorted out at all. I, li- I want to say to anyone who feels as though you should quit because of your sins, I want to say this to you. This is the same thing David said to the, basically in a roundabout way uh, to the people receiving this first gospel message. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you've done dirty deeds with dirty hands. Yes, you're wrong. But God's plan was so much bigger than your sin that he expected your sin. He planned for it. Uh, imagine being able to tell someone when they're, they're, they, they can't get their courage to come up, come back to church. They can't get there. They, they're too condemned. And you say everything you feel in terms of condemnation, God, God's bigger than it. In fact, he planned for it. And the debt has already been paid. Yes, Peter says, you killed him. But God's plan was always bigger than your scheme. He knew it was in your heart and he used it. He planned for you. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear. What Peter has done is he has connected what they already revere, the prophet Joel, what they already believe, the promise of David, with what they are uncertain about but need to believe in, that is what God is doing right now. They, what Peter has done is he has drawn a string and on one end of it, you guys already revere and honor the prophet Joel. I didn't make this up out of a blue sky. I, I, I reference what you already revere and believe, prophet Joel. I connect it to the most famous, exalted, celebrated uh, individual of Old Testament, which you believe, King David. 
he is not taking them first to what he wants them to believe. He's not arguing the point without connecting it to what they already believe. This is the same thing you will see as we go through the eight gospel messages that we are given in the New Testament. You'll see this over and over and over and over, and you'll find some version of this is always present. You make a connection to them. It may be a connection of something you know they believe. It may be a connection of something you know they respect. Remember Paul on Mars Hill? We'll get to that on another Bible study. You make a connection to what they already believe, they already know. You have to either know them or you have to be willing to listen until you do know them. Peter can make these connections because he knows his crowd. He can preach to them because he knows his crowd. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is ready to give a gospel message and he can connect to their current beliefs, their current uh, religious reverence. He can connect it all together and then present Jesus Christ, not as what God has done, connected to what God has done, but to what God is doing right now. This is what's happening. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit poured out. He poured out this, which you now see and hear. That's the peace he wants them to get. That's what he wants them to believe. That's the stretch for them, not honoring Joel, not believing in David. The stretch is, is what happening right now of God. You see, sometimes um, the difference in a preaching as an appeal and preaching as a debate is this. Uh, when I preach a debate, often as a debate, it's often this kind of confrontational, I'm right, you're wrong style and sound. That is not what is happening here in the presentation of the gospel. This is almost as though Peter makes appeal, you know about Joel. He makes appeal, you know about David. And then he may ask them to stretch to see what God is doing now. What is happening right now? This moment, this exact sign that is given this is what God is doing, but he does not ask them to make a decision yet. He goes back to what he knows they already believe. I want you to see this process, and I want to see it in my life, because so often we, are, we present the gospel uh, to people in a manner where it's take it or leave it, and then we wonder why so many people leave it. Rather than we connect, we connect, ask for the stretch, connect, connect ask for the stretch. Um, you believe this, you believe this, you see the good of this, you see the good of this. Now's the stretch. Can you see the good of this? Um, and so uh, let's continue here uh, with this, with this, uh, the end of this message. For David, remember, he asked them to stretch. Believe what you're seeing right now is the Holy Spirit of God working among you and then he goes back to David. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He is saying, Peter is saying, I'm asking you to believe that this right here, I know this is a stretch for you, that this is the work of God. Let me take you back again to David. And let me show you how David prophetically, his worship song and verse soared above uh, worship and praise and stood in realms of prophecy and showed us that Jesus would, be, would sit down, Jesus the man, the flesh, would sit down at the right hand of God, the eternal spirit. And this, as it were, conversation of completion where the Lord ascends back into heaven till I make your enemies, your footstool. Uh, Peter's basically appealing for them to see what God's already doing. What, what's happened here is just to be explained by the people I know you revere. Don't, you're not going to believe it if I explain it. So I want to give it to you from the mouth of Joel. And I want to give it to you from the mouth of David, verse 36, therefore, 
let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now he, that's the close, that's the clincher. Let, can't, let all the house know. In other words, will you accept that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ? Verse 37. But when they heard this, the crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then famously, then Peter said unto them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children and all who will fall off as many as the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Um, this phrase here is uh, unique because um, when he says perverse generation or in the King James, we've been reading the new King James, um, in the King James, it's the, this untoward generation. It's as though Peter is saying this, I know this is hard for people to accept. And this generation is going to fight it. They're going to resist it. But don't cast your lot with them. Be a believer. This is the exact same thing that every gospel preacher from then till now ultimately does when we try to close an individual to a point of making a decision. I know it's not the popular thing. I know there's going to be plenty of people who say no. You're going to have to choose away from this generation. You can't, you can't save your, <laughs> you can't really save yourself from sin. That's a work of God. But you can save yourself from this generation because all you need to do for that is reject the answers that your generation is satisfied with. Do you see? Reject the popular train of thought which your generation is satisfied with. Don't be satisfied with the generational rationalizations, justifications, explain away. Don't be satisfied. Save yourself from a generational dismissiveness or dismissal of this gospel. Be a believer. This is the same challenge that all uh, gospel preachers off, offer to everyone. Uh, the, the great lesson here is the, the, the reaction, or rather the way in which uh, Peter is aware of where the people are who are hearing. He is able, he knows what they care about, and he knows what they believe in already. And then he makes appeals to what they believe in. And he connects to that as a bridge to the final thing he wants them to believe, which is what? This Jesus, whom you crucified, is now Lord in Christ. Peter, what are you trying to get to? This is what I'm trying to get to. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is now both Lord and Christ. Um, again and again, as we go through the preaching of the gospel, you will see these same points and principles used where the preacher appeals to the condition, the place, the belief structure of the people he is reaching. Um, I'll reference because it's on the, it's been on, in my mind several times already. Um, remember how the apostle Paul, and we'll, we'll read his message um, in another Wednesday night, but he, he makes this strange appeal to uh, the unknown, an altar to the unknown God. Uh, rather than saying, first of all, all you guys are crazy for believing in these gods. They don't exist. Instead of gospel as debate, it is gospel as bridge. Let me say that again. Instead of gospel as debate, it is gospel as bridge. Gospel as bridge. You believe in Joel? You believe in David. 
we were talking about Jesus who made himself known among you through many signs, many miracles, many infallible proofs. He made himself known among you. You believe in Joel. You believe in David. Can you believe that this Jesus is part of God's plan and that the answer he provided of grace and redemption was bigger than your sins? And back to David, you believe in David. Now comes the closer. Closer. This man whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. So here is the lesson. Um, when we share the gospel, uh, we either bridge to where people are, or oftentimes we talk to ourselves. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of religious people are having conversations with themselves, um, and they're preaching to saved people. Um, because they refuse to have a heart to build a bridge of connection to where they are. Um, when Paul preaches um, his sermons to the Gentiles, he quotes repeatedly from, and we'll get to this in Paul's messages, he quotes repeatedly from Greek and Roman philosophers. Oh, don't do it, Paul. It's false doctrine. How can you do that? Paul, Paul will do it repeatedly, and we'll get into that in the future. He quotes from their poets, their philosophers. Why would you do that, Paul? Because the presentation of the gospel must be a bridge to where people are, not where we wish they were, to what they actually believe, not what we wish they believed. And the goal is to not correct everything they believe. That takes time. There's a term for that. It's called discipleship. Yes, it's the D word. It's super hard. It takes time. Every one of us serving God for many years, we're still wrestling. We're still becoming. We're still repenting. If you're not repenting, by all means, don't let your head hit the pillow tonight without repenting. Who knows? Perhaps your soul might be demanded of thee, do you see? Um, discipleship is going to take a lifetime. We're not looking to correct all their beliefs. We're looking to find a belief we can bridge to. And so when we do this, um, I, I was witnessing to a friend of mine who's quite involved. This was a few months back, quite involved in various uh, nonprofits and charitable works. And I knew he had a passion for that. And so when I presented the gospel to him, um, I made this appeal that the, the mission of God was to make a broken world whole. And sin had created the world as we would have it, not as God would have it. So it makes small sense to blame God for sin. Um, God's point of Calvary was to make a broken world whole. And I said to him, building a bridge, this is something, whether or not you can say you believe it, you in your own way honor it and try to live it. I know what you do with nonprofits. I know how you donate your time and your money. I know how you try to make a difference. You may not claim it, but you are a partner with Jesus Christ when you do that. You are trying to make, and um, he sat there for a while and, and he kind of had a quizzical expression on his face like, huh? And finally we got, he said, well, you know, that's what I believe. He said, if, if what you're going to say to me is that the whole point of Calvary, the whole point of Jesus is to make a broken world whole. That's what I believe. Well, uh, the day before he was saying he was an unbeliever. Uh, he, was an, he was an atheist. Now he's saying a day later. Now, did he agree with me on everything? No. But I was looking for the place to build the bridge to and then let God begin a longer term process in their life. The first profound lesson of this first time in the scripture where a gospel message is preached is this. We've got to connect with what they already honor, they already revere. We have to bridge. We have to use the gospel as a bridge. Uh, the second thing that I would point out from this passage as we wrap this up here is don't underestimate signs. God uses signs. Uh, Peter references the evidence Jesus gave of himself as signs and wonders. He references the sign that the Lord gave of tongues on this day as a sign. And so um, 
I am trying to get more bold when I'm talking to people to, to pray with them and say to them, I'm going to pray the Lord will give you a sign. I'm trying to get more bold doing that. It makes me to makes me live in faith. You understand? It scares me a little bit um, to, to do that, but I'm, I'm trying to get much quicker and stronger to say to someone, well, I know this is a point of question for you. I'm going to pray that God will give you a sign. And when it happens, you'll know in a moment that you need to turn your heart toward the kingdom of God. Don't underestimate the power, the power of signs. And the final lesson is people are, um, well, let me say it this way. We're not always good judges of where people are in terms of their, their readiness for faith. None of the people who walked by this service where the Holy Ghost was being poured out, none of them were expecting to be in tears. None of them knew that they were convicted. None of them knew. You understand what I'm saying? Conviction is oftentimes a surprise of building the bridge. I want to emphasize that again. And in the manner of preachers everywhere, I want to repeat myself. Conviction is a lot of times a byproduct of building the bridge. They started out a little bit irritated and, and, and miffed about what's these people doing all this crazy stuff for drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. But when Peter built a bridge, what happened? They realized they were quite more <laughs> ready for the gospel than they realized and conviction smote their heart. I want us to pray that all of us would be uh, more, uh, more sensitive to the presentation of the gospel. I want to pray that all of us would be more sensitive to the bridge building element of the gospel sermon. Um, I want to pray that when I, when I'm preaching that I'm constantly asking myself, um, how do I build bridges to people? Um, conviction is the byproduct of the bridge of the gospel that crosses all the divides and it works. And we'll see this as we go through all these gospel messages, whether it's the Gentile hearing it, uh, whether it is uh, men, women, young people, uh, different nationalities, different backgrounds, soldiers, merchants, Pharisees, doesn't matter. Um, the, the gospel bridges the divide and it connects us. It does not make us agree about everything. Um, and this is one of the great limiting factors of the gospel. If Peter would have stood up on the day of Pentecost and he would have said, how many of you can agree that the law is now kaput? How many people do you think he would have received uh, in that service? If he would have stood up and tried to get them to agree, agree about everything, but if he would have stood up and he said, the school of Shammai says that um, you can, you, you have to, you have to go through the Mosaic court to get a divorce. That was the most contentious issue of the day. The school of Hillel says uh, you can do it just by writing your wife a letter. We're not moving on with this service till we all agree that the school of Shammai was correct. Do you understand how making them agree about everything would have ended everything? Um, he, the most contentious issues of the day are never mentioned. I can go over them with you. Um, politically, it's the Roman problem. The most contentious issue of the day is Rome right in conquering us or are we right in fighting them? Peter never mentions it. That's the most political contentious issue of the day. On the social pages, what's happening in the social pages, do you see, um, is going to be the affairs of the uh, the, the Herod, the, the court of Herod, there was more than one Herod, uh, but I don't want to get into that right now. That would have been the gossip column, do you see? Um, other than that, whatever was happening in the Sanhedrin, whatever that would have happened, whatever was happening among the zealots, that would have been the big stuff of the day, do you see? Peter never mentions it. Um, other big controversial issues of the day would, of course, have been the marriage issue, because that was huge at the time. Um, Peter never mentions it. He does not try to get, oh, uh, more, whether or not we should go with the Sanhedrin court of we work with Herod as best we can in order to have peace. That's what the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees basically did. The Pharisees uh, largely aligned with the Zealots. They said, no, we should fight and we should kill them. You see. How many times does Peter talk about that? That's the most local politics, never mentions it. And we could go on and on um, with questions of 
uh, great individual debate of different laws, different uh, teachers. It, it never ends. If you read the history, they're, they, they're arguing over everything. They're arguing over whether or not it's lawful to, um, this is not a joke. This is a real argument among Jewish scholars of the time. Is it lawful to eat the egg of a chicken that was laid on the Sabbath? Can you eat that egg? How many times does Peter talk about that in his message? If you thought not at all, then you would be quite correct. The gospel ignores so much. And that's why we cannot get caught up in fighting over a bunch of stuff that is not about the gospel. Um, you're welcome. I'm welcome to our philosophies and beliefs. But look at Peter. He's finding a bridge of connection. And what he finds is if he can build a bridge, on the other side of the bridge is the work of the gospel. And there are people moved on by the Spirit, weeping as they repent, asking what should they should do, believing on Jesus Christ, but receiving the gift of his Spirit, being baptized, do you see? And so this is the work of the gospel. Um, I want to give you a moment, um, if there are any questions about this, to type those in. Um, I don't expect this to be a high question uh, subject, but sometimes I'm surprised. I'm not always um, good at that. But while I'm giving you a moment to type type in some of those questions, I want to I want to pray together with all of you and uh, us take a moment here and ask the Lord for His help and His blessing in presenting the gospel. We are called, Lord Jesus, to be presenters, to make a daily presentation of our great hope. We are called to be the voice speaking into uh, a wilderness of sin and saying, make way the path of the Lord. We are, we are called to prepare your way. We, like disciples sent ahead of you, go house to house, and we say, uh, Jesus is coming through here. Can he stop by and bless you? Can he come by your house? Jesus is coming through. Do you have any needs? He can heal. He can, he can change everything. We are given the opportunity to witness. We are given the opportunity to share. And so, Lord Jesus, I'm praying that we would have wisdom to connect. We would have confidence to speak. And we would have audacity to ask for a response, ask them to make a decision, to lead them to a final, not just to leave it hanging. Can we agree that this man, Christ Jesus, whom you have crucified, has been made both Lord and Christ to bring people to a point of decision uh, in their life? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, there was one question that I wanted to, uh, it wasn't asked in this format. It was a result of me uh, talking uh, earlier. Um, but one thing I want to talk about is what do we do when we are talking to people who they know the gospel, they know the gospel, and they uh, are disagreeing with some element of church life, some interpretation of a scripture um, this is usually family um, or close friends. Family knows what you believe and they know when they don't agree <laughs> and they'll tell you. And this is the, this is the, the tragedy of it. Um, families oftentimes when they don't agree, they will actually fight as bad or worse than sinners over something they don't agree about. That's not even a central element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why they do this is fear. Um, as we get older, when someone believes something differently than us, it, it, it is terrifying. It fills us with fear. And out of fear comes most of human ugliness. Most of human ugliness. You find the angriest people in almost any social environment. And if you could be them you would find their anger is their response, their coping mechanism to a fear of some type. Um, and so what we have to do is most of us are comfortable building bridges to people we don't know, but we're also comfortable burning down bridges to people we do know as we're fighting over some scriptural detail 
some application, some interpretation of a passage. Um, I think you should pray about that and you should pray for the wisdom of the Lord when you have a contentious relationship like that, where you never go into that relationship without praying that the Lord would give you the wisdom to be true to yourself without burning down a bridge, to learn. And you can even practice on how you're going to say it, where you're going to respond. Well, now, you know, I don't, I, that's not how I interpret that scripture. You know that. They know. That's why they're provoking you. It's because they know. <laughs> um, I understand you're interpreted differently. Uh, I, I'm glad that we're both on the Jesus team. But um, I think on that scripture, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to give each other some room because you know how I interpret it. That's much better than not speaking for a year. <laughs> that's much better than saying I'm never seeing them at the holidays again. All right, that's enough. Um, I appreciate you all. Please, um, please carry some of these prayer requests with you uh, the next few days. Um, we're, we will be having our morning prayer at 630 tomorrow and uh, Friday. Um, you're welcome. If that fits your schedule, you're welcome to be a part of that. It's no obligation, of course. Um, but we will be praying there. But all of you who will, would you would you keep um, Dan Smith and Cindy Smith in your prayers? He is he is he is in tremendous need. Um, Holly Camp has a serious health situation going on in her body, and we are praying uh, for her. Uh, Kim Lazarak loss in her family has been quite a blow on her family. We're praying for her. Um, but that is uh, that those just some of the prayer requests that um, that I, I, I have uh, and there are others um, but that's I think enough for now I love you God bless you have a great week I'm going to turn your mics back on so you can greet one another as uh, if you want to um, if you want to before you go we love you God bless you we will see you Sunday it's going to be a great weekend listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you'll help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us. Thank you.